Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Hey, listeners, be sure to subscribe to Cavalry Plus on Apple Podcasts if you want access to new episodes a week early and ad-free. Cavalry Audio. When Marjorie Musa got engaged to a handsome suitor named Alejandro Hildebrand, her father decided to put on a wedding worthy of his beloved daughter. He pulled out all the stops. He brought in professional belly dancers from Texas, had over 3,000 kibes prepared. That's a traditional Lebanese dish consisting of wheat and small balls of meat. He flew in his entire family from Lebanon. He even imported the desserts. It was a spectacular affair that the family would talk about for years. And Marjorie, with her bright green eyes and that effervescent smile on her face, was at the center of it all. Pretty, sociable, smart, witty, popular, always cheerful. Marjorie, or Mamouche, as her father called her, had always been the center of attention. She was a doyen in Guatemalan high society, and she was clearly her father's favorite. Her sister, Aziza, older by seven years, admitted that fact freely and without rancor. Nobody could dislike or resent Marjorie for any reason. It was impossible to not love her. A star student and softball player, a born leader with a good head for business, Marjorie was one of those girls who was just good at everything. In 2009, at 42 years old, Marjorie was married, a mother to two little girls, and widely expected to succeed her father as head of the family business. Marjorie was also in love. She had fallen hopelessly in love with another man, Rodrigo Rosenberg. And he returned that love just as passionately. At 47 years old, after two unhappy marriages and two divorces, Rosenberg had finally found the woman of his dreams. Marjorie and her family lived four floors above Rosenberg in the same upscale apartment building. They first met dropping their children off at the same bus stop. A romance quickly blossomed. When her father was looking for a new lawyer, Marjorie was the one who recommended Rosenberg, just so they could be closer to each other. And by the time our story starts, they had been in a relationship for almost three years the secrecy of which troubled them both. Marjorie especially hated herself for lying. But 
They wanted to wait for her to get a divorce before going public with their relationship. A step that was proving more complicated than Marjorie had anticipated. The main problem was her father. Khalil Musa was a strict adherent to traditional patriarchal values. The gossip was that Musa had gone to the lengths of disinheriting his eldest daughter, Aziza, on account of her divorce a few years earlier. And so, as they waited for the right moment, Marjorie and Rosenberg exchanged adoring text messages, dozens of them every day. Marjorie would write messages like, good night, my love, my prince, my whole life. You don't know how much I love you, how much I adore you, and how much I need you. You are so tender with me, and you're the sweetest man I know. Rosenberg would call her my Marjorie de Rosenberg, or my Tinkerbell. They both eagerly anticipated the day when they could be married and spend the rest of their lives together. In Rosenberg's eyes, they were living a fairy tale romance destined for a happy ending. Because no matter what happened, no matter what complications they faced, the only thing that really mattered was that they loved each other deeply, fiercely, forever. On April 24th, 2009, they exchanged nine messages starting from 6.38 a.m to 12.34 p.m. That morning, Rosenberg sent Marjorie a message that read, your prince forever. Just a few hours later, Marjorie would be dead, killed in the street. In the Rosenberg video, a gold wedding band is visible on his ring finger. Initially, investigators were puzzled by this, given that Rosenberg was divorced. Only later did they learn that just a few days after Marjorie and her father were killed, Rosenberg received a call from a jeweler. Marjorie had bought Rosenberg a wedding ring before she was killed. She loved him. She wanted to marry him. And now, she was gone. From Cavalry Media, I'm Edgar Castillo, and you're listening to The Rosenberg Case. This is episode five, The Affair. Qui bono. In Latin, that means, to whom is it a benefit? It's a phrase usually attributed to Cicero, the legendary lawyer, orator, and philosopher of ancient Rome. In a legal context, the underlying principle behind the question is that the person who most stands to gain is usually the one who committed the crime. At this point, I want to take a step back and take stock of where we are. In May of 2009, Rodrigo Rosenberg, a prominent Guatemalan lawyer, was murdered allegedly to cover up the murders of Khalil Musa and his daughter, Marjorie. So far, 
I've provided the political, social, and historical context in which these three murders were committed. We've also run through a list of potential perpetrators. Now we're going to examine each of these suspects. Specifically, we're going to invoke the spirit of your boy Cicero and ask the simple question, to whom was it a benefit? Let's start with the man Rosenberg explicitly accused of the crimes, President Alvaro Colón. If it is true that the president was using government-run social welfare programs to launder money from Mexican drug cartels, a scheme that Khalil Musa could have potentially exposed, then he would have two clear motives for engaging in a murderous cover-up. One, self-preservation staying in power, and two, keeping the spigot open and the money flowing. The only problem with this theory is that President Colom seems to have been kind of a big nerd. Given that most observers believed him to have the spine of a jellyfish, we have to admit the possibility that, although Colom may have been a part of the money laundering scheme, he may not have had the temerity to actually order the killings himself. However, Santa Colón, the steely woman everyone called the bulldozer, would not have flinched from punching someone's ticket to the suite hereafter. The same goes for Gustavo Alejos, the president's crafty chief of staff. That doesn't mean either of them did it, but if they were involved in the money laundering scheme, the same incentive structure applies. Neither of them wanted to go to prison, and both of them craved money and power. Therefore, both of them benefited from the murders of Khalil Musa and Rodrigo Rosenberg. Another theory of the case is that Rodrigo Rosenberg was being manipulated by more nefarious actors as part of a political conspiracy to frame President Colom for a crime he didn't commit, forcing his resignation and toppling his regime. If this were the case, the two men who stood to benefit the most from a coup d'etat were one, Vice President Rafael Espada, and two, Otto Perez Molina, leader of the opposition party and the man Colom defeated in 2007. We talked about Perez Molina last time, so let's focus on Vice President Espada for a minute. I've mentioned before that Vice President Rafael Espada was a surgeon. To be more specific, he was a highly accomplished and renowned cardiothoracic surgeon. He was actually based in Houston, Texas, before returning to his home country to run for political office. Espada was 65 years old, nearing the end of his distinguished career when our story begins. He had an affable smile and a warm, grandfatherly bedside manner. He was beloved in Guatemala, well known for making monthly trips from Houston to perform pro bono surgeries for underprivileged patients. Nothing I've described so far makes Espada sound like a murderous Machiavellian operator, does it? The truth is that at the time, no one really believed him capable of breaking a pinky promise, let alone killing three people. Nevertheless, 
he had been directly named by Rosenberg in the video. Remember, Rosenberg called Espada an honorable man and implored him to take over the government. Vice President Rafael Espada isn't a thief, he's not a murderer, so he shouldn't act like one. He needs to start a movement demanding the resignation of putting all these bastards in jail. If anyone benefited from the removal of President Colom from power, it was his vice president who would assume the highest office by order of succession. Additionally, for months, rumors had been circulating that Espada had been essentially sidelined by the Coloms, elbowed out of the decision-making loop and the public eye by the First Lady, Sandra Colom. The Coloms had traded on Espada's immense popularity and immaculate reputation in order to win the presidency. But they had now turned him into a purely ornamental figure, with nothing to do but smile for the cameras at photo ops. Was Espada upset at his treatment at the hands of the Coloms? Was he angling for a more prominent role, for more power? Perhaps the most blatant indication that Espada had gotten himself wrapped up in the Rosenberg affair was a report from a conservative journalist that the vice president had actually met with Rosenberg in the days before the murder. On August 31st, 2009, a journalist named Marta Yolanda Diaz Duran published an article titled The Kiss of Espada, in which she compared the vice president to Judas. According to her sources, Espada had met with Rosenberg one week prior to the assassination. In that meeting, Rosenberg briefed Espada of his investigation into the Musa murders and had told the vice president that he believed his life was in danger. Diaz Duran alleged that Espada turned around and informed the Colombs of Rosenberg's investigation, betraying the lawyer's trust and effectively handing down his death sentence. For his part, Espada vehemently denied the allegations and accused the journalist of libel. Publicly, the vice president kept playing the good soldier, always echoing the right talking points and backing the president. Given the startling revelation that Rosenberg was in a secret love affair with Marjorie Hildebrand, we are compelled to put another piece on the board, her husband, Alejandro Hildebrand. Was the murder of Rodrigo Rosenberg actually completely disconnected from the Colom administration? Is it possible that Alejandro Hildebrand, maddened by grief and rage, hired the men who killed Rosenberg as an act of revenge? That wouldn't necessarily invalidate Rosenberg's investigation, and it wouldn't answer the question of who killed the Musas, but it is a possibility. That said, perhaps that wouldn't be good enough for Cicero. After all, Alejandro Hildebrand wouldn't materially benefit from Rosenberg's murder. Lastly, we come to Luis Mendizabal and Mario David Garcia. These guys were like the zealots of political conspiracies. They always popped up whenever some crazy right-wing plot went down in Guatemala. 
But did they have anything to do with the murder of Kalimusa? It doesn't seem like it. If there was a money laundering plot at the top of the government, which it looks like there probably was, neither Mendizabal nor Garcia were getting a slice. If Colom were to resign, perhaps they could have gained access to the new regime, although that seemed a more distant and tangential possibility. Still, although both men were a little past their primes, underestimating the ability of either to wreak havoc just for the sake of wreaking havoc would be a huge mistake. So there were several suspects, each with a motive and with the means to carry out the crime. Which takes us back to our original question. Qui bono? To whom is it a benefit? That was one of the many questions Carlos Castesano was asking himself as his investigation continued, as days stretched into weeks during the summer of 2009. By this point, Two years into its mission, owing mostly to the high-stakes drama of the Rosenberg case, CICIG, the International Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala, had risen to the fore of Central American politics. And Castesana, the bold Spanish prosecutor unafraid to speak truth to power, was becoming a media darling. His status as an outsider, who nevertheless cared deeply about justice in Guatemala, positioned Castresana as the country's conscience, according to the American ambassador. Even though CICIG had a spokesperson, Castresana was the organization's true face. And he had few qualms about making frequent public appearances. Media hits, press conferences, fundraisers, etc., leveraging his reputation for impartiality and integrity to burnish Sisig's credibility and power. But as Castesana's star rose in the public eye, his private life was taking a commensurate downward turn. Castesana was married to San Juana Martinez Montemayor, a respected Mexican journalist known for covering human rights abuses. She was living in Monterrey, Mexico, with the couple's two young children, a consequence of the extraordinary regime of security measures Castresana was forced to live under in Guatemala City. Due in part to this separation, the pressure Castresana was under and other unspecified complaints Montemayor made against her husband to the UN, their relationship was fraying. The enemies of Sisig those who believed that the commission had too much power and never should have been created in the first place, took advantage of Castesana's strained personal life to launch ad hominem attacks, hoping to undermine his credibility. Many of these enemies were known to be connected to the SIACs, the clandestine security groups that secretly exercised significant power like El Sindicato, the organization led by Otto Perez Molina. These were criminal groups that needed Guatemala to remain a mafia state in order to thrive. 
So, of course, they wanted to cripple Sisig and its mission to combat corruption. Their number one target was Carlos Castesana. The SIACs desperately wanted to get rid of the Spanish prosecutor. And Mario David Garcia, the conservative agitator, led the way. On Hablando Claro, his highly popular radio show, the Rush Limbaugh of Guatemala launched a series of ad hominem fusillades against Castesana, openly accusing the prosecutor of multiple extramarital affairs and the sexual harassment of at least three Guatemalan women. He even went as far as naming the specific CSIG agent with whom Castesana was supposedly having an affair something that could have endangered the agent's life. Now, whenever interviewed by the media, Castesana was forced to answer questions about his private life, to defend himself against what he considered to be spurious, indecent charges. Suffice it to say, by September of 2009, Carlos Castesana was feeling the heat. He had been investigating the Rosenberg murder for four months, and in that time, the case had only grown even more convoluted. He was overworked, overstretched, isolated, on the defensive, his personal life falling apart, and all of it, the time spent, the sacrifices, the pain, all of it would be for naught if he couldn't find out who killed Rodrigo Rosenberg. 577-9747. Luis Mendizabal made sure to write the number down. On May 5th, Rodrigo Rosenberg went to Boutique Emilio to update Mendizabal on the progress of his investigation into the Musa murders. He pulled out his cell phone and showed Mendizabal the calls he had received from that 577 number. From that number, Rosenberg had been receiving a series of threatening phone calls. He told Mendizaba that whoever was calling from that number seemed to know when Rosenberg was in his apartment. It felt like he was being watched. But that wasn't all. Rosenberg told Mendizaba that he had just gotten into a heated argument with Gustavo Alejos, the president's chief of staff. Supposedly, it was in this argument that Alejos threatened Rosenberg, telling him to stop investigating the Musa murders or else something bad might happen. This conversation between Rosenberg and Luis Mendizabal happened just five days before Rosenberg was killed. At least, that's what Mendizabal told the CSIG team when they finally sat down for an interview with him. The old man showed Castesana and his team the 577 number that had been making the threatening calls to his murdered friend. He also encouraged Castesana to do a forensic investigation into the books of Bandural and the Colom's political party, the National Unity of Hope. Mendizabal fully believed the allegations Rosenberg had made against the president. Unlike Castesana, he knew Colom personally. They went back decades. And he knew exactly what the president and his wife were capable of. 
Castesana didn't know what to believe. After interviewing Mendizábal, he looked through the dossier his team had compiled on the old man. It must have been as thick as a Bible. The tailor's long career as an unofficial intelligence operative had spanned over 30 years. He had more skeletons in his closet than a Mexican Halloween store. But was he lying about this May 5th meeting with Rosenberg? Did he have a reason to lie? Mendizábal freely admitted to helping Rosenberg film the video, but claimed to have had no actual knowledge of what Rosenberg would say. He knew that Rosenberg was having an affair, but didn't know that it was with Galil Musa's daughter. He knew that the lawyer was investigating the Musa murders, but hadn't actually seen any of the evidence Rosenberg had gathered. In fact, Mendizábal claimed that Rosenberg had a confidential source who was willing to sell him hard evidence that would prove his case against the Colombs beyond a shadow of a doubt. His biggest regret was that that evidence never came to light. Castesana was understandably frustrated. Every answer just yielded more questions. Every time he felt like he was turning a corner in the investigation, he found himself in another dark hallway. His interview with Luis Mendizábal brought him no closer to the truth. The old man was a cipher, a man so practiced in the art of deception as to be resistant to the very concept of truth. The tailor had definitely been involved in the recording of the Rosenberg video, but had he been involved in the murder? Sisig had no evidence to make that connection. There was nothing to indicate that Luis Mendizábal meant Rosenberg any harm. Despite the old man's long and sordid history of duplicity, Castresana had to rule Mendizábal out as a suspect. For now. On the morning of September 11th, just as he heard the distant call of a rooster crowing, William Santos Divas woke up to the startling sounds of men barging into his home, pointing guns in his face, and shouting for him to get on the ground. As a former cop, he could tell what was happening right off the bat. He was under arrest. For the past couple of weeks, Santos Divas, the man they called Comisario, or the commissioner, had been under significant stress. The 33-year-old leader of a gang of hitmen, Santos Divas suspected that there was a mole in his organization. The last several jobs that he had planned for the gang had been mysteriously foiled. The bank they were going to rob suddenly decided to put extra guards out front. A businessman they were going to kidnap left for an impromptu vacation, that kind of thing. If it had only been once or twice, he would have written it off. Shit happens. But it just kept happening. And that set his antenna off. There was a mole. Someone was talking. But who? Was it El Mudo? Don Edwin? Cochita? Maybe Vaquero? No. No, no way. They were all ex-cops, just like him. He'd known them and worked with them for years. 
They were good guys. Compas. Now, the only guy who made sense was El Soldado, that army guy. He had never trusted that dude, never liked him. He was the only soldier in a crew of cops. Besides, he had a big mouth, and he had been running that mouth about that Rosenberg job for a while now, going on and on about it. If El Soldado was the mole, then Santos Divas knew there was only one option. They had to take him out. That was the only way to make sure he wouldn't cause even bigger problems. What Santos Divas didn't know was that someone else had been listening to his calls and tracking his movements for the past few weeks. There was no mole in his crew. The person that had been foiling his plans was Carlos Castesana. Sisig had been subtly tipping off the gang's targets, trying to prevent potential crimes without giving away their wiretapping operation. Little by little, Castesana's agents had pieced together a full picture of Santos Divas's network. They had identified nine other members of the criminal gang and got warrants to listen in on their phone calls. 12,000 calls in total. Additionally, sophisticated cell tower data analysis allowed the team to determine each phone's geographic location at the time of the Rosenberg murder. Castersana now knew exactly who had been there and how the crime had been carried out. What he still did not know, what the killers had not revealed in their phone conversations, was who had hired them for the job. He had to keep the operation going until they got that crucial piece of information. But when Sisig realized that Santos Divas had imminent plans to kill the man he suspected to be the mole, Castasana knew he had to act. Especially because Santos Divas was also planning on killing the man's underage, pregnant girlfriend. And so, on September 11th, 2009, beginning around 3 a.m., over 300 soldiers, police officers, prosecutors, and CSEG agents began gearing up for what would be the largest simultaneous raid in Guatemalan history. At exactly 6 a.m., 14 separate raids were carried out all over Guatemala City and in two other cities. Not a single bullet was fired, and over the course of 10 minutes, every single suspect was apprehended. Castesana paraded the handcuffed suspects before a horde of news cameras and confidently announced the result of the raids. In this operation, we carried out a total of 14 raids in the early hours of the morning. There is no doubt that this morning we have apprehended the material authors of the murder of Rodrigo Rosenberg. Sisig had found and detained the hitmen, all of them between ages 20 and 40. Sisig agents also seized evidence from each of the 14 locations, including over 30 cell phones. A quick study of the call histories on these phones revealed one number in common, a number that had been in contact with the gang on the day of Rosenberg's murder. The number belonged to another ex-cop named Jesus Manuel 
Cardona Medina. Si Sig quickly identified Cardona Medina, alias Memin, as an intermediary, the man who had brokered the deal between the hitman and the contractor. Cardona Medina was subsequently apprehended and questioned. Using plea bargaining as an investigative tactic, something that had never been done in Guatemala before, Castesana and his team got Cardona Medina to flip on the rest of the gang. Two more of the sicarios quickly followed suit, including Cardona Medina's cousin. And with that, Sisig started to get the full picture of how the Rosenberg assassination went down. You know that big spinning machine thing that makes pilots and astronauts barf when they're in training? Well, put your helmet on and strap in, because this story is about to take you for that kind of a ride. Sisig learned that Cardona Medina, the intermediary, was approached by a professional bodyguard named Nelson Wilfredo Santos regarding a sensitive problem his bosses needed handling. Apparently, the bodyguard's bosses had an issue with an extortionist they wanted to take care of. That's the story the gang of hired killers were told, anyway. Cardona Medina met with the bodyguard's bosses to receive a burner phone that would be used to communicate with the guy they had on the inside. This inside man called himself Canche, or Blondie. And this was the man with whom they negotiated payment, $40,000. Kind of a steep price, but this was a rush job, after all. This Canche also provided William Santos Divas, the leader of the Sicarios, with detailed information on their target's appearance, residence, and daily schedule. On Friday, May 8th, two days before the murder, the gang met up in a Burger King near a posh neighborhood to plan the hit. The inside man had given them the target's address. The gang took a few turns around the building, acquainting themselves with the environs and determining logistics. On Sunday, May 10th, the killers traveled in four separate vehicles to the scene. They met at a gas station on Avenida Incapié at 6.30 a.m. Ten minutes later, they drove around the Target's building, scoping it out. The streets were empty, all clear. Now, all they had to do was wait for word from Canche, the inside man. At around 8 a.m., Cardona Medina, waiting in a Mitsubishi pickup truck, finally got the call. It's Canche, the voice said. The inside man proceeded to tell Cardona Medina precisely where the target would be, the exact spot. Somehow, Canche also knew that the target would be on a bicycle. Do it fast, though. He's only going to be there for five minutes, he said. Cardona Medina quickly hopped on his two-way radio 
to give Santos Divas the signal. It was time. Santos Divas was already positioned near the building in his black Mazda 6. He didn't have to wait long before the target came out through the gate on his bicycle, just like the inside man said. Santos Divas followed behind at a reasonable distance as the target rode his bike down the empty streets. The target, whoever he was, was all alone. No protection. It looked like this was going to be an easy job. Then, as the target turned onto a service road, Santos Divas radioed a command and then dropped out, giving way to a white truck. The white truck drove down the service road, saw that the target was sitting on the grass off the side of the road with his headphones on and sped towards him. The truck screeched to a stop and an ex-cop named Lucas Josue Santiago jumped out. He approached the target with a 9mm gun and shot him five times, execution style. Santiago jumped back into the truck and it zoomed off. They radioed in a confirmation to Santos Divas. The target was dead. The job was done. It turned out to be a pretty easy job indeed. The target was exactly where Cancha told them he'd be. Afterwards, the gang met up in the Burger King again for breakfast. They were hungry, especially Lucas Josue Santiago. He ordered a supersized meal. He deserved it. He was the one who pulled the trigger, after all. In between bites, Cardona Medina tried calling Canche, the inside man, to confirm the kill. No answer. He tried again. The other line just rang and rang. Canche was not picking up. The gang was confused. Wouldn't he want to know how the operation had turned out? Hours later, the inside man was still not picking up. Concerned that he was about to get stiffed, Santos Divas instructed Cardona Medina to go back to the guy who had originally approached them, Nelson Wilfredo Santos, the bodyguard who was acting on behalf of his bosses. The gang was going to get paid. They were going to get their money one way or another. Cardona Medina called Nelson Wilfredo Santos. The bodyguard told him that his bosses couldn't meet at that moment. They were in the middle of dealing with a family emergency. The intermediary replied that making the sicarios wait was probably a bad idea. So within a couple of hours, the meet was set. Cardona Medina, drove to a pharmaceutical laboratory in Via Canales, 22 kilometers south of the capital, to get the second part of the payment. The laboratory served as headquarters for Key Pharma, one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in Guatemala, a company which was owned by two wealthy brothers, Estuardo Valdez Pais and Francisco Valdez Pais. And there it was. Castesana had finally found the men truly responsible for the murder of Rodrigo Rosenberg. 
the Valdez Spice Brothers had hired the gang of hitmen and paid them to do the job. But, like everything in Guatemala, it wasn't that simple. Pay attention because here's where the story really spins out. Because when Cardona Medina arrived at Gifarma headquarters, he couldn't help but notice that the Valdez Spice Brothers were visibly shaken, distraught, pale from shock. When Cardona Medina asked for the gang's payment, the Valdez Spice Brothers told him that they had got the wrong guy. Sobbing profusely, Francisco said, you just killed our cousin. That's right. Castesana and the CSIG team were stunned by the revelation that Rodrigo Rosenberg and the Valdez Spice Brothers were family. That's next time on The Rosenberg Case. If you don't want to wait to find out what happens next on The Rosenberg Case, be sure to subscribe to Cavalry Plus only on the Apple Podcast app to get next week's episode right now ad-free. Trust me, you won't want to miss it.